Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Comedian Kyle Kinane's love for punk rock is well known. He's tweeted about being an unapologetic pop punk fan. And perhaps some of his fans are aware that when he was younger, he played in the punk rock band, The Grand Marquis, which he's talked about in detail on the podcast, My First Band. But The Grand Marquis was not his first band. Before that group, he played in a ska band called Skabeatles. His time in that group was short-lived, but his interest in ska was not. Yes, punk rock always came first, but in the Chicago scene where he grew up, he saw many ska bands play, including Skank and Pickle, a show I also happen to be at. Today, we dig into the ska side of Kyle's life, and there's more there than you'd expect. Have you ever thought about doing stand-up, Aaron? (laughs) Um, When I was younger, I considered doing anti-comedy. Oh, yeah? What would that be? Uh, probably just like me yelling at people. <laughs> <laughs> so basically just Narboots. Yeah. Do you know that, um, the comedian Brody Stevens? I don't. He is like, I had this thought before I would became aware of him, but when I saw him, I was like, this is exactly who I would have become had I pursued comedy. Cause he's like, he's funny, but like half of his set was always like just tripping out the audience or, or just going off on tangents or making everybody uncomfortable. And that's what kind of what he became known for is like just his antics and stuff and his, and his just anti-comedy approach and stuff. So there's an alternate universe out there where the Aaron Carnes just yells at audiences about ska as a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Do you like ska? Do you like ska? Do you hate ska? I know. That could have been my act. Missed opportunities. You played sax in a ska band in high school. Yeah, I got, uh, my buddy Brian had joined up with some fellas. I don't know wh- where he met them at. And it was a a, a, a pal named Roger. He was kind of like at the helm of the ska band. And he just basically, just went, like anybody that had a horn, he put them in the band. I think knowing that they weren't going to last long. So he just collected one sweeping, like cleaning up the Pacific garbage patch 
got anybody with a brass or woodwind instrument and put them in this band. And I was one of them. So how, how many horns did this end up being? <laughs> I think at, I think at one point I want to say there was like eight. Oh my God. No, not a, not a skilled musician amongst us. It was, I had quit band in the seventh grade. So I went from like fifth, sixth, seventh. So I had those two years of not practicing a saxophone. And I just had one in my garage. I just wanted to be in a band. So I'm like, yeah, let me, all right, I'll whip it up. I'll figure it out. So was this band really called the Ska Beatles? Yeah, man. <laughs> I just saw the bass player, Kevin, about a month ago. My other old band played a show at the Beat Kitchen in Chicago. And he, I, I didn't get into it with him, but he wasn't talking about I don't know if he had a sore throat or something's wrong with his throat. But I what. There's been some talk about the Scabeetles. Scabeetles is the way it was pronounced. Oh, it's not the Scabeetles? Scabeetles. Come on, Aaron. It is a subversive <laughs> sense. Instead of using a pun and just putting the word ska in front of any other word, if it was self-aware, that would have been hilarious. It wasn't. And uh, I did not understand the reason behind that name at all. So you guys didn't play Beatles songs, Ska? No, not even close. <laughs> not even close. Or, yeah. And what would a Ska Beatles cover band, I mean, what would you call, yeah, what are they called? I mean, I could see that being okay, like a Ska Beatles cover band. A Ska anything cover band, sure. But to call yourself the Ska, ska Beatles, to have to correct somebody. So the Ska <laughs> Beatles, it's the Ska Beatles. <laughs> yeah. I just assumed it was like, we are the Beatles of Ska or something like that. That was like the the name. The meaning or something. I, I don't know. <laughs> I was not even in the band long enough to like get to the bottom of the naming. Cause I think it was, that was always a contentious point with uh, just seeing <laughs> it on a flyer and being like, man, I can't hand this to people. It's, I mean, it sounds like that thing from like that movie singles, like the, the shitty Beatles, except for it's even the shittier Beatles. <laughs> well, that was uh that was Wayne's world. I believe. Was it? Oh yeah. You're right. My bad. Yeah, the shitty Beatles. I'm mix, mixing <laughs> up my my fake bands for my f- movies. Fuck, what if that was? I, I would. I, you know what? I, I, I'll have to reach out to those guys and find out the origin because they they eventually continued on, got a different singer, and called themselves uh, Jambalaya, which lateral move. Yeah, it's still not a great name. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. And I look back because even that band, I think about band names. I'm like, what are like horrible band names that we just ignore because we like the band so much mm-hmm. that if you really had to sit back and go like, Poof, that's still a really bad name. And I still don't think there's anything that's been named as bad as Scabeetles. Scabeetles is pretty bad. I'm trying not to slag those guys too much. They're all good fellas. Actually, the Dave Hoffer runs a DuPage County Hardcore a website that's collecting all the music from the Western suburbs scene. So still I'm in touch with him too. So, so how long did you last in the Scabeetles? It sounded like you weren't there very long. I think I made it. Given that there was so many horn players that my participation wasn't necessary. I think it was more of like a, 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 a like a, like a horn section polyphonic spree that if I was there or not there, nobody even noticed. Sure. So I, I, Maybe a year or so. That's not too bad then. 
Yeah, I don't even think I had to quit. I think I just didn't have to show up anymore, and people didn't. It was like a home alone situation. Like it wasn't until they were playing the gig. Like, where's Kyle? Like, oh no, we left him at home. <laughs> yeah, no, he stayed at home on purpose. He was fine with being at home. So, you, did you play gigs then? Did you play any gigs? I played a uh, yeah, I played a handful of shows with him, and I remember like at what, one of the songs, like everybody kind of had a solo. They gave everybody a solo, including the horn section. And I would comically grab uh, what's that instrument? It's like a, it's not a maraca, but it's got like the the metal beads around it. But it's got a handle like a maraca. I would just grab that and shake it like, ha Everybody's trying to play a horn solo that they <laughs> half figured out at the last practice. And then, and then tuning. Oh my god, tuning. Jesus Christ! Like, I, I, it, who cares? <laughs> Yeah, trying to get eight <laughs> amateur horns in tune. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, let me make sure. Play, yeah, play an E. Play an E string and let me pull my mouthpiece out to the correct millimeter to make sure. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm faking. I'm air saxophoning this whole show anyway. I thought I would meet girls. Yeah, I thought I would meet <laughs> girls being the third alto saxophone player in a ska band. Can you remember any of the shows? Like, where where'd you played? I remembered some basement shows. I remember... Um, like it was like the church basement VFW hall scene because this was like mid to late nineties. And uh, I never played in the city. I think the guys actually did get booked on, booked on a show at the Scatolites at the Metro. It was after I was out of the band. I was real proud of them for that. I thought that was cool. So yeah, that Metro is like a big uh, venue in Chicago. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, yeah, sorry. I don't know where you guys are based and what. We're, we're based out of California, but we both, we've both been to Metro. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was kind of like the spot. I mean, unless you were playing a super big place, but that was, you know, that was kind of, I think that was about the same time Fireside started up. But for the time before Fireside came in, it was just a lot of suburban shows and stuff out in Elgin. And then Metro would have these $5 all ages shows. So that's what we'd go into the city for. And then, then the fireside opened up, and I, I wasn't in that band by the time the fireside was was up and running. Also, I don't think the fireside stage would have held uh, that many numbers. <laughs> I remember, I remember seeing like less than Jake there, and it was gnarly because it was, I mean, it was like a bowling alley. It was still an active bowling alley during the week, and so it was just that area that you walked on to get to your lane. That's where the stage was at the end of that. So it was all of maybe 20 feet wide and then long. So it's like somebody trying to play a trombone at just a pack of like crowd surfing kids. <laughs> I was, I worried like a mom seeing like kids crowd surfing and knowing somebody had like a, like a trombone or a trumpet in their mouth. Like, I don't know how many teeth were lost. I bet more ska horn players lost teeth than anybody in like sick of it all or something. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was always a big worry, you know, playing places where there's either a low stage or no stage and the crowd pushing the microphones into the bells of the horn, which is then pushing the horn into the mouth of the horn player. It was definitely like something, something you worried about. One of the most dangerous jobs I think in music was like a a horn, like in a third wave ska band where there would be like breakdowns and punk parts. And yeah. you're just putting a putting a piece of metal up to your teeth and trusting drunks and teenagers to behave accordingly. But you still have all your teeth. 
I do. Yeah, I did. That was, I, I didn't, yeah. we didn't, we didn't uh, really incite any riots in the Skibbeetles. <laughs> and also the woodwind, you were, the woodwind was lucky you had to read and it would like go, if anything, it would just, you'd just gag on the whole neck of the yeah. saxophone. Or cut your lip, maybe. <laughs> yeah, you'd cut your lip. Oh God, reeds. I'd like, oh, you got to change your read. I think of all, whatever drinking and drugs I've done in my life, I, I'll still blame whatever late stage <laughs> cancer that pops up <laughs> on whatever was growing inside the mouthpiece of that alto saxophone <laughs> that I did not inspect from the time I quit in seventh grade <laughs> to the time I started playing in a band at 19 or 20. <laughs> Never, never changed your read. Then I think Delta variant's my fault, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I think, I think, yeah. Don't, don't blame China for coronavirus. Blame every band kid that had a woodwind <laughs> instrument that never changed a read for seven years. Yeah, the the sax player in my band was just never, never changed his read, and like, and was proud of it. Yeah, and he was like trying to maneuver his mouth in this way to stay in key because it was like this huge obstacle course to get to the right position to actually play correctly <laughs> it was so ridiculous it was like change your read it was it was like a it was like a like a, a pride thing for him though he's like oh no I, I can still play on it and it would be like green and like full of mold and like cracked <laughs> yeah. and he'd be like no I'm, i can still play on it Oh, God. it's not a relic Telecaster. Like, look, no. man, I played so much. I wore through the paint. The pick guards cracked under cigarette burns in the headstock. It's like this is a biological threat to everybody <laughs> that you're in the car with on the way to the show. And how much how much does a read cost? Do you remember? Oh, sensed under a dollar at least. It was more. <laughs> exactly. It was more than guitar picks, though. I remember that. It would be more than guitar picks. Like even if it, even if it was seven dollars for a read, even if it was seven dollars, you're gonna get another three years out of it. Go spend yeah. the seven bucks. Yeah, <laughs> spend the seven bucks. By the time you reach drinking age, maybe maybe that saves. Maybe that's why you don't have to change it. Once you can start consuming alcohol, that kills the bacteria in it. But anybody under oh yeah oh, oh god, just I'm just disgusted thinking. About it. I know that saxophone still exists somewhere in the world. Oh yeah. You you don't have it though. It's just somewhere. I don't have it. I gave it to my friend Brian, who was who got me in the band. He played tenor sax, and I had an alto sax, and then I just let him keep it. Much to my parents, my parents are the ones that paid for that. You know, I can only imagine. That, you know, your kid just. I don't know if you guys are parents or not. Yeah, uh, you are. Yeah, yeah. Are, how old are your kids? They're they're eight and ten. Are they at the age of like I want to start an instrument? Kind of like in the next couple of years, it'll probably happen. And the funny thing is, is I actually have a pocket trumpet, a trombone and an alto sax all in working oh, okay. order, but like, I don't play any of them. I've just accumulated them over the year. I play guitar. <laughs> yeah. But like the idea is that like when they get into like junior high school band, if they want to pick a horn, like I've got three, they, we got can, you. they can go to. But I mean, the thing that I was wondering, your parents, when you see them, do they still bring up how much they paid for the alto? No, I think once it got, I went, I did violin for like a half a year. I quit everything I ever tried. And uh, I played violin for every year in grade school. And I think that's like end of grade school is fifth grade. And that's when you could start taking band instruments. And I'm like saxophone. Cause he, I mean, if you're the same age, I'm like, that was the, boy, that's what's cool. You know what's cool? Saxophone. Yeah. That's the coolest instrument because nobody had a guitar 
nobody I knew had an electric guitar. That was like, mm-hmm. that was only for people on MTV, but saxophone's pretty cool. Bleeding Gum Murphy plays the saxophones on The Simpsons, and he's cool, and I want to be cool. California Raisins had a saxophone player. So I had that through junior high, and I think I quit, I quit it in seventh grade. I didn't even make it through all of junior high. And I regret too because band the the band credit you had kept you out of like the home ec or I forget like not trade school type classes in junior high but like I don't know if you had that where like if you were in band you didn't have to take these other classes like shop or anything yeah we got out of PE because it was marching no kidding yeah love that oh I got out of like um uh. To the shop classes and everything because then in eighth grade i got thrown down there and that was basically just like gen pop at a at a prison because it was in the basement <laughs> of the building and it was all these like <laughs> roughneck kids and i immediately i, I immediately it was like a white collar criminal that got thrown into prison <laughs> i was like oh i'm not gonna last <laughs> Kids were stabbing me with sewing needles and stuff. Like I should, I could have just been bad at saxophone. Why did I quit? Why did I think that was harder than fighting for my life for fifty <laughs> minutes every day? I took drums. I started drums in uh, fourth grade band, and then did did uh, junior high band, and then I did the first year of high school. The other drummers, they were all like junior, senior, and uh, they were they were the only kids that were cool in the band. They would sit in the back behind the drums and they would like they would actively have chew in their lips, which was like <laughs> blew my mind. I was like, wow, these guys are cool. And they all had, like metal like shirts, like with the sleeves ripped off. And they just sit in the back with their chew and like spinning their drumsticks. Yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> called in like special forces, like right, the drummers. Yeah. I remember it was always based on like how large the instrument would be. Because it was like alto sax was reasonable, tenor sax for a kid in junior high. <clears throat> that was a lot to carry on the bus. Clarinets, there was a lot of clarinets because I think it was just e- it was just easy to transport. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then if you had one of the gargantuan, like the bass, the bassoon or something, they just left that at the school because you could practice on your regular clarinet. But I remember like having my alto sax. Like I'm not dragging this shit back and forth. I think that's why I'm just physically too lazy. And then I got in a regular band with those like cabinets and everything. I'm like, oh, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm curious about your discovery of Scott. Um, I know you you know you saw um like Poison, right? Poison and Warrant was your first concert. You bet it was. And then your first DIY show was um Screeching Weasel, right? At uh McGregor's. Oh, you guys did research. Yeah, we do research here. I'm guessing ska came through DIY punk. Is that where it came through? I think, yeah, I think it came through with Operation Ivy. I remember like it was, it was one of those like, oh, got into it right before it blew up kind of things. Like saw Green Day open for Bad Religion back when I, and I just read uh, my buddy Dan Ozzy's book called Sellout about Mm -hmm. all the bands that made the jump to major labels and like how green day in 94 was like, that was their jump. Like, Oh, I got to see him in 93. Big, big whoop. Uh, but then it was like, there's these, there's a couple like really cool gals in high school. These really cool, cool girls. And they always had cool t-shirts and the gal had the operation Ivy t-shirt, which that's like, you know, classic cover, classic design. 
And I remember having, I was just, I was just unashamed. Like, what's that? Where's, what's that music? I want to know, I got to know about everything because I remember like, I didn't have older siblings to get me into stuff. So I, I just had to like stumble in. I had a cousin who gave me like Fugazi tapes because if you rode BMX, you had to listen to Fugazi. That was a rule. But while Fugazi was very grim for a suburban 12 year old who's just trying to have a good time. Sure. Uh, and then so, so so I was like, okay, I heard Screeching Wheel. I heard a, like uh, that Plastic Bertrand song on um, National Lampoon's European Vacation when they're in the Louvre. Like I heard that before I heard the Ramones. <laughs> and so that was like, I'm like, well, I just, whatever music sounds like that, I want to hear that music. And then heard Wild in the Streets and I think the movie Thrashing, the skate movie Thrashing. And so in high school, I went up hanging out with skateboarders. He took me screeching weasel and then hang out with these, all these kids. And she had this operation Ivy shirt on. And I'm like, what is that music? And she's like, it's not punk. It's kind of like rap. Like she didn't know what Scott was. <laughs> she couldn't, she didn't know how to describe it. She's like, it's kind of like rap. Cause they talk and sing at the same time. And I'm like, all right, whatever, man. Look, it seems like a thing. I, I want to check it out. And so got a copy of that. And yeah, still not really knowing what ska, like, wait, is it reggae? Is it are these white people playing reggae? I'm not sure it is. And then that third wave stuff came in because I think the album, because we had Slapstick. That was Chicago's big yeah. claim to fame in that scene. And Slapstick shows were just, that was like, that was just the event. That was like the oh shit, there's a slapstick show this month. Cool. Everything's going to be fine because there's a slapstick show and it's going to be the best time. I remember being at a place called the third floor out in Elgin. And like at one point, even in my like 16 year old mind, finding a pillar to stand by because the floor was flexing so much from people jumping up and down. I'm like, I think this is going to be a catastrophe. (laughs) And finding <laughs> some sort of structural support to be near. Cause I thought the floor was going to collapse, but it was, it was just such a positive scene. Like, you know, people were moshing, but nobody was beating each other up. Like that shit didn't have, like once the football kids and the jocks found out like, Oh, you can go and beat the shit out of P like that turned things. But there was that window in high school where they all thought you were still a freak for liking that music. And you'd go and, you know, I'm sure you guys know, like bounce off of each other and have a good time. And slapstick was just like, they have horns, but it's kind of like punk rock. And I guess this is what ska is. And at that time, that's when, you know, less than Jake was coming out. And then you got, you know, w- with that, you got exposed to the New York, like slackers and the toasters and, the uh, you know, the more old school type of stuff, which I was a little too young to appreciate that. I definitely like the third wave stuff the most at that time because i was a kid i just wanted to go nuts like less than jake shows at that point they were like those were like kiss shows you know just everybody turned up didn't matter what you were into you just into less than jake because that's a fun show and they were touring they toured so much that was the first band i remember being like i think i can sit this one out i think less than jake's playing like they play about every five months i think i think i'm gonna say goodbye your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. 
Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pass this one. We'll be right back after this. Do you remember um, how you heard about Slapstick originally? Was it just like kids at school were talking about them or? That. I'm sure everybody feels the same about their scene, but that first show that I went to at McGregor's, that was, it was Screeching Weasel. And I missed the, the actual lineup was Screeching Weasel, Smoking Popes, Bo Weevils, and 88 Fingers Louie. That was, it was the last show that McGregor's was doing. And it was, there was so many people that turned up for it that Screeching Weasel play, agreed to play a second, a late show. And that's the show I got into. None of the other bands played on the late show. Um, and just, once I saw that and heard that, I couldn't like, I'm like, I just didn't understand that world. Like it's, I feel like people don't get that where something brand, you get exposed to something brand new all at once. Like there's an entire scene that you have no idea about. I feel like in a good way, that's great that you can go on the internet and look up anything you're curious about and find out what's out there that corresponds with your views or your tastes. But when I was like, you know, like, Oh, I just wish music sounded like that one song from national lampoons, European vacation. And then I saw it. And then you walk out and there's just people handing you pieces of paper. Like, did you like that? Well, here's next weekend. Here's three shows that are doing the same thing. Like give me all them pieces of paper. Give me, I just grabbed as many flyers as I could and <clears throat> tried to get rides with whoever I could. And when I got my license, like, all right, I'm going, I'm going to get there however I can. And Slapstick was one of those bands and they were, they would play on mixed bills because there wasn't, I mean, there was this ska influx. And I think, I'm sure you guys know more than I do about this, like from Michigan and Wisconsin, there was a lot of ska bands. And I wonder if it's because kids' parents came from like German, like polka, oompa type of stuff. And Summerfest type music, like if that informed it at all, is that oh, maybe? Is there any truth to that? Or I mean, I've never heard that theory before, but that that does make some sense to me, and it makes sense that you know they'd have maybe some of those instruments laying around, and that the music would be the type of thing that their parents like compared to playing just straight punk rock. Yeah, and it, it's like a beer drinking kind of like genial like let's get together and have a good time and drink beers and have fun with this music type of stuff yeah so like that so the band like you had like mu330 and mustard plug and a lot of those midwest bands ska bands coming around but even still like even though slapstick was local they were still the biggest draw and they were getting you know they were, they were like the band that would open up for anybody of no effects or somebody who's coming through and slapstick was on the bill like you're still like oh shit slapstick's playing and they just put on just a hell of a show they just put on the best show of anybody in my opinion you saw slapstick more than pretty much anybody else then i saw him a lot i yeah. think uh 
I'm pals with Brendan now. And so I've talked to him about like when that band starts, we're about the same age too. Sure. And so, you know, and he was exposed to more of the city side. I was definitely in the suburbs for all of it. So I, I didn't get to see as much like the Wrigley side and the Cubby Bear shows that were going on. But anything that came through Elmer's VFW or Elmer's YMCA or Elgin or all those spots. Like if they were playing, if they, yeah, if Slapstick was playing, I was going to, I was going to go. But I would say that about all those bands. I'd say that about A.A. Fingers Louie. Smoking Popes, I'd probably see more than anybody. Uh, but as far as ska bands, I'm try- like, we, we had like Hot Stove Jimmy, had the Monsignors, had uh, ska. I'm tr- there wasn't as huge of a scene, obviously, as like the straight up punk scene. But it was like kind of sure. kind of all blended together. Everybody's playing everybody else's shows. So. Did you go see uh, Blue Meanies? Oh, Blue Meanies. Uh, you know what's weird enough is that I never had the appreciation for the Blue Meanies back in the day. And they would play every year on my birthday. They'd play December 23rd at the Metro. And they would play like, and usually Peg Boy would play. And I'd go see Peg Boy. I'm like, ah, Blue Meanies, that's too all over the place for me. <laughs> like a dick. I didn't. And then I had, uh, I had done something with, um, oh, I forget the fella's name. I feel like a jerk from the Blue Meanies. Billy? And that's now he, yeah. What? Billy. Billy Spunk. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Now he lives in like Arkansas and is into mountain bikes. And so I've texted him about yeah. mountain biking and stuff. And that, But realizing <laughs> like, yeah, man, I never went and saw the Blue Meanies play. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> dude. <laughs> you know what it was? There was, I, I really liked anthemic, like, um, like triumphant anthem type songs. And they definitely played more of like the snarling cocky kind of tone. Yeah. Like, it was kind of menacing. Very menacing. Yeah. yeah. Menacing is a great way to put it. Yeah. It was menacing. And I, uh, I never gravitated towards the menacing stuff. Cause I'm like, ah, why do you guys, these guys seem like they're going to try to creep out my mom. I'm just trying to have fun here, man. I, I really liked the weird stuff. So they were like, to me, they were like amazing. Like, my when you when you talk about that discovering the this whole world that exists like before it was ska it became ska but before it was ska i was like just fascinated with the idea that the clubs that there was these things called clubs and that they had a music scene that was yeah. completely different than the radio like they were not they did not overlap at all and so yeah. i would get tapes from people and then as soon as i could convince my mom and stuff i would go and i i at the my first introduction was more like the funk stuff, like which in, in the Bay Area that included stuff like Primus and Mr. Bungle or whatever. Sure. And I was just, you know, it was a world I was just t- completely taken with. But then, like once I heard ska, I, my, Skank and Pickle was the first one. That was that was it. I took a yeah. hard turn that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mike Parks, Bay Area, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was the same feeling. Yeah, like like what like like going to McGregor's and seeing like hundreds of people lined up. Like, well, what the band's not on the radio or on MTV? How these people even find out about it? And then yeah, for then the worst result is as then once you got into it, like I was uh, I was also the same kind of guy that then got protective of it. Like, how do you? What you're not cool enough to like this stuff? Like, all right, <laughs> teenage territorialism kind of thing. I I loved bringing like a friend to like the show because it was kind of like I was like like exposing to them something i would know i know they would love you know yeah like the experience of it yeah but i think maybe in some level i felt protective of it like i didn't want you know i wanted to bring people that i liked 
to join it. Not like, not, I don't want to see all the people I didn't like enjoying it. I'm, I'm part of this little club. How'd you find out about it? Because <laughs> I, I wear a different shirt from these bands every day to school. And eventually the same thing that happened with the girl wearing the Operation Ivy shirt is going to happen. But yeah, I think it was like a Misfits of Ska was the comp. I think that I was like, all right, what are all these bands? I got to learn about all these bands. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Misfits of Ska. It was just such a good front to back comp. Yeah. I, I heard that on um, one interview, you said that you saw the Skank and Pickle, Skank and Pickle and uh, Seven Seconds at um, Rockland. Oh, no, no. Uh, Rockford. Rockford. Yeah. It was a skate park in Rockford. We drove there. I mean, I wanted to go to the show, but it was kind of far. But then there was a girl that I liked that was going to that show. I'm like, well, I'm going to go there. But yeah, that was a, that was an odd combo. So it's funny is um, I'm pretty sure that I was at this show because I roadied with Skank and Pickle and seven seconds on this tour they did in the Midwest. Okay. And I'm pretty sure that that's the only time this happened. I don't think that they did a show in a different tour. So this had to be the same tour that I roadied on. Uh, at a skate park. Do you play a skate park? Uh, yeah, I actually, Oh, I can picture it now. I can picture a skate park. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I can see it. That was it. Yeah. Y'all were in the same place at the same time. <laughs> that was it. Well, that had to be 96. I think it was 95. Yeah. Okay. 95. Yeah. yeah. But see, so, so slapstick were on that tour most of the days, but not every day, but I, I looked it up. And I didn't see them listed that show. Did, do you remember them playing? No, I don't remember them being on that one. They were still in high school, I think. And so they would play sh- whatever shows they could play. They got to open and I'm pretty sure that they drove to each show and then back home so they can go to school <laughs> and then go, you know, then go to, <laughs> you know, Michigan or whatever and go to the show. That might have been. Yeah, I don't think they were not not knowing them all that well, but I don't think they were like pure derelicts. I think they're all came from nice families. It seemed like, <laughs> you know, yeah. you can do it, but you got to get you got to be if you got to be or better. You could stay in the band. Kind of thing. Yeah. Do you remember anything else from that show that um that skate park show? I don't. I, I remember kind of like watching people skate and ride bikes. I don't. I don't remember any details from it. I went to so many shows. Sadly, like the highlights and the lowlights can all blended together. Mm-hmm. Biggest thing, like of like fun sky. I think I saw Mu three thirty. Maybe it was Mustard Plug. In a in like a like we we had sharps in Chicago, the skinheads against racial prejudice, but there were still a bunch of dickheads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like these guys are still just looking to bully somebody. Like you, sure. you guys still just want to look for. And I remember, I'm like I'm a little guy as it is, and uh, before I had my age and beer weight on me even, and I just remember like, like getting pushed into a dude, just some dude in a bomber jacket. And he just spun me around, and punched me in the stomach. He's like, "You don't mosh to ska." I'm like fucking mickey mouse looking fuck like i got pushed <laughs> into you and i'm a 30 your size but yeah those dudes would those dudes would creep out, out once in a while the sharps and everything so we had yeah we had like uh, deals gone bad and bands like that that would like ska bands they'd bring out some of that like south side rough and tumble crew and it's like oh you guys are just looking for a fight for one reason or another just because you have different patches on your jacket doesn't mean you're not a jag off <laughs> That was an era where I think like the the trad scum people were a little resentful towards the uh, not trad scum people. 
you know, yeah. like you're not, you're not the real deal. You, you're into this phony ska. And so they had a bit of an attitude about it. I remember we went to see the Boston's at. So if you're familiar with Chicago at all, there's two venues that are real close together. It's Riviera and Aragon. Both are similar size venues. And the Boston's, I believe, were playing at the Riviera. Uh, and at the Aragon was one of the early incarnations of OzFest before it became this giant stadium festival. So we all got out of the shows, got out at the same time. And this is like before you knew like fat, like, Oh, Scott, you just wear suspenders and bow ties and shit. You know, like you just, you just look like somebody asked you to the prom three hours earlier and you put together <laughs> what you can find. And side so buddies, I don't think I was in the full gear, but they were in the Scott camo. They had the suspend. I think they all went to like, like, what's the like like a uh, men's warehouse or burlington coat factory to buy a, like the like the tie and suspender plaid tartan combo that matched and like, everybody just threw out the cummerbunds and kept the rest of it for the show <laughs> but then we had to take we had to take the train back to Loyola. we were all staying there at my buddy's dorm for the night and we had to get out with all the metalheads <laughs> all the metalheads after the fucking Ozfest show are on the train just staring at my buddies or wearing suspenders and bow ties, like waiting for them to make balloon animals or something. And I was like, <laughs> I can't believe, cause that was even worse too. Cause we had parked, we were like idiots driving and like, Oh, we'll just park in front of this JJ peppers or something was a convenience store. Not realizing they tow cars. We're just thinking like, they can't look at all the cars and where they're parked in the city. Cause we we're kids, you know, we we're like, my buddies are freshmen in college. We're still morons. So they towed the car and that's why it was the last resort that we had to take this train back and not really even knowing how to deal with public transportation and just, yeah, bow ties and suspenders and everybody else just lurching over us through like, you know, Aussie t-shirts and cannibal corpse t-shirts. And I'm like, Oh, we're going to fucking die. And you're going to die wearing suspenders and bow ties. <laughs> like they're going to choke you. They're going to choke you with your accessories. <laughs> Fortunately, there's no riffraff, but it was like we, we really kept to ourselves on that train ride. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't remember. A, I don't remember dressing up much at all. And I don't remember seeing many people dress up like out here. It was like occasionally you'd like run into some guy who was like, you know, had a scooter and suits and be like, wow. Almost yeah. like, wow, how do you, how did you put this all together? Yeah, you either had to do it so right because if you missed, you missed by a lot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was either land, look at this guy, he is so cool. What a fashionable mod, or like this guy should be pushing a cart that sells ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so where where in this did uh Scabeetles, like where did that fit in with your you know going to shows? <laughs> oh, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> was it before, after, during, like so I got I graduated in ninety five and I was I was determined that I was gonna have I wanted to, I wanted to be a part of that. That's what, that's one of the things about that scene was like good and bad in a way of like the DIY scene or something. Like it made it all look so accessible. Yeah. They're like, Oh, well, anybody can have a band. And then truly anybody could have a band and they did. <clears throat> but I was like, I just, I want to, you know, fine, I'm I stand up now, man. Like it was just like, I'm still want to be in something. I still want to like create things and perform things, you know? Mm -hmm. So, it was my buddy Brian, and like I said, I forgot how he linked up. I think through somewhere he's working, 
It's like they're doing a ska band. I'm like, well, if, and he's like, they're looking for any horn player. I'm like, I really can't play this. He's like, I, they don't really care. I'm like, okay. <laughs> At least it's a foot in the door. At least it'll get me the idea of like, you're showing up to practice. You're doing a thing. And I remember at the, at the same time I was like, you know, I mostly was just playing guitar and everybody had some instrument or access to something. I'm sure it was, you know, same with you guys. Like everybody had something, everybody Mm -hmm. had an instrument or could borrow an instrument or could jump on a drum kit and fail their way through a screeching weasel song or a Ramon song or something just to make it feel like, look at we, the three of us or the four of us or however many of us, played the same thing at roughly the same speed for an amount of time. (laughs) And that was all like, once you felt that you're like, rest is easy. We got it. We're a band. That's it. We're going to be a band now. And so I think it was a problem with the Skibitals is I never felt like I was, there's just first off too many horns, just, and I don't want to be critical (laughs) because it was, it was cool. Like, like, that they that they got it together and it's still you know, Roger was a ringleader and Kevin I saw and there's still parts of the, you know they're still in the music scene. I mean Kevin was still he's an amazing baseball like that was the first time I saw anybody play bass without using a pick and play as fast as they could with their fingers and I remember being like what why are you in this band you're amazing at that instrument and it was a lot of people like like we just want to be in a band and fortunately this one was this very community center kind of halfway house of like sure do <laughs> you want to be in a band you're in the scabitals doing what doesn't matter you're in the band get over here <laughs> grab some things to bang together or something grab <laughs> grab some uh world music instruments that were always in the box in band class that nobody touched two sticks a block of wood whatever you're in the band <laughs> rain rain stick yeah rain stick tambourine <laughs> it's fine get in here Hit a frisbee with a chicken nugget. <laughs> so you'd been going to shows for a little bit already at that point, right? So you'd seen, you'd seen what a good band or what a good scene offered, essentially. Yeah, and I saw, and it was one of those things where you saw everybody that you saw going to the shows. You eventually saw in a band at the show. Yeah, you saw people getting it together, or you saw them being part of it somehow by by putting on shows, designing the stuff or helping somebody record or helping somebody take tickets at the door or something like you saw everybody somehow contribute to that scene i you know it was the arrogant cocksure kid like oh well, i'm gonna be in a band i gotta be a rock star kind of thing but yeah you saw everybody getting in a band somehow the fact that ska bands were like anybody with a horn you know <laughs> gathering people together some sort of like militia effort to start a band <laughs> So you're the the Grand Marquis. Uh, this came after Skibitals. Yeah, kind of was born at the same time. I think I was like I was getting a taste for being in a band, but just I just did not know how to play saxophone. Yeah, so like at all, like even even like I would like just show me what notes, and then still I never had the confidence to actually blow into the instrument when we were playing live. Like, there's no way this is going to sound like it's adding to the sound at all. But I was playing guitar and that. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm also getting an idea of how like, all right, here's how you guys wrote a song like this. And then we're going to change this key and get an idea of that kind of stuff. So I brought that. And then Grand Marquis was just fun because it was my friends. 
Like I realized I was in bands after that and it wasn't nearly as fun. It's like, Oh, cause I, I just, we played this show back in October and we had more fun. In my opinion had more fun getting back together for the week, practicing and hanging out than we did playing a show. Sure. Because it was like, Oh yeah. Oh, then we screw up the song. So what? Start it over. Make jokes. Then for a show, it's like, Oh God, we got to carry this stuff. Oh, we got a half hour. And we got to carry it out. <laughs> we got to figure out where to park. <laughs> How great is loading in and loading out of a venue? It's Aaron's favorite thing. Dude, how great is it when you just pull muscles getting out of bed? Now you're like, who, who, whoever needed a 412 cabinet? Nobody ever needed this much. What about the 810 cabinet? Uh, either, she's, yeah, the, the, the Ampeg base. The, the, yeah, the World Trade Center Ampeg cabinet. The best that, thing to pick up and carry upstairs. It's the best. Jesus Christ, like a wheelbarrow on its end. Like, we never played to more than 13 people. We don't need any of this. We could be an acoustic band. We need none of this. Yeah. My buddy, we played, he had like an orange, like a 112 orange amp. Like, oh, this would have been fine the, the entire time we were a band. This would have been a fine piece of equipment. Yeah. He's the same guy who was too drunk loading out of a second story show and just let go of his Marshall cabinet. And I was, I had to run, I had to Indiana Jones escape this thing tumbling down a staircase after me. Cabinet was fine. I mean, it's a credit to the construction of a Marshall cabinet that I could take a two story tumble down the staircase and still be all right. How are the stairs after that? I I don't think we're invited back. So I didn't get to take a look at (laughs) it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the, having to load drums to to get to gigs is the worst. And through the process of playing gigs, my drum set got smaller and smaller. Like one one floor tom, one regular tom, and I think I was like hi hat. No, you didn't even have one regular tom at the end. Was it okay? You yeah, doing, it was, you did floor tom, bass drum, snare, hi hat, yeah. <laughs> ride cymbal, and that's it. That's, that's it. it. That's all you need, that's man. It. And and, I'm, and if I'm remembering right, you would just stack everything inside the bass drum. You just took the front head off. Yeah. And you're just like, fuck it. Yeah. Either your either your bass kit gets smaller or the rest of the band gets more and more <laughs> frustrated. Because like, what, man? Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ. How'd people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I had to talk to a promoter afterwards. That was Our drummer was always absent when it was time to get the drums out. <laughs> in Defense of Ska will return in a moment. So the um, the Grand Marquis though lasts a little longer than Scabito or your or your 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 time in the Scabitos. We did my time in the Scabitos. Yeah, Scabitos did go on to become Jambalaya, and I think did did all right. Yeah, and a different singer. I forget his name, but he's a real charismatic guy. They were a fun show to watch. I'll say that they did. They put on a real fun like what you like in a, like at least what I like in a ska show. Like it's not music that would like somber, forlorn. Like I don't think there's like shoegaze ska unless you want to start it now there's like an emo ska type movement but it was always like no i'm here because i want to enjoy my life and that jambalaya incarnation of him was like oh this is a fun show to watch and grand marquis lasted i want to say 96 to 
maybe 2000. I think oh, it overlapped. Okay. Yeah. Lasted. I wouldn't say succeeded, but lasted. We had fun. We had, we had, I'll say we had a real good time when at the time, you know, our, the sound was not so wildly outdated practicing last month. And we're just like, why did we play anything this fast ever? What are we we doing? (laughs) Is the venue closing? Why are we playing these things so fast? (laughs) Adam has like a a newer band uh, called Omnigon. And I I played a few tracks on his uh, record a few years ago. And Mm -hmm. two songs, I I did well. Third song, I'm just like, oh. I'm losing burnt. it. I can't keep up. <laughs> keep up. Our drummer's still in shape. He's still great. Uh, and our bass player, Greg, he went on to play and like, he's still a member of Horace Pinker. They don't play too often, but he still plays bass in Horace Pinker and was playing stuff. Like he's still capable musician. I just remember seeing him he had the same bass that he bought from the Grand Marquis and I he was playing it like, like like the paint was gone on it from playing it so much. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. Describe the Grand Marquis sound. Oh boy. I think our, our motto was always uh it's not talent, but it's entertainment. So <laughs> even before the comedy career started it was still like listen you might not like the music but we'll keep you we'll keep you enjoying the show we'll make sure to like fill the gaps between songs with something worthwhile uh it was at the time we were real like um face to face was a big influence and that did not go back into ska whatsoever it went Mm -hmm. towards that just what everything was kind of sound like i remember i saw lifetime for the first time and i saw Lifetime. i went to go see mustard plug and i think lifetime either missed a date or was some for some reason they were and i don't know if you know the band lifetime at all yeah sure jay like like emo but hardcore kind of that that jersey thing that was going on in the late 90s but so i'm like oh yeah mustard plug that's always a fun show they're from michigan so they play chicago pretty often and then lifetime came on and everybody in there was just like what the fuck is this it was in the best way it was a sound that nobody had ever heard because it was hardcore but it wasn't that like broed out at least i call i would call it hardcore because it was like super fast you know it wasn't that drudgy they didn't play as many of the drudgy kind of emo songs they had but it wasn't this victory records broed out like all right everybody's gonna start just trying to break noses in the pit. It was just this super fast, super high energy, but emotive music and everything. So as soon as I heard that, I'm like, how can I try and play like that? And the answer was, I can't because they're still (laughs) very good musicians (laughs) and there's a lot of precision and there's a lot of sobriety that comes with being able to play like that accurately. And uh, none of us possess that, especially at a live show. We would like work in like, well, we got to get there early, not to load in, but to make sure we have enough drinks to be able to perform for people. (laughs) So it was face to face. I tried to write a lifetime song. Our drummer was from Southern California. So he was all about, he was just like Blink-182 and just fat records type stuff and could could play that stuff really well. Still, Still is a great drummer. So sidebar really quick. When, when the, the punk beat, 
I like to ask mm-hmm. a lot of people this: the punk beat. How? What do you call that? Um, without uh, playing it on my thighs with my hands. Uh, yes, like that. That fat. Well, there's that fat. The fat record sound. The fat record sound. Okay, which everybody knows from like your no use for a name, no effects, lag wagon, strung out, eighty eight fingers, Louie. There was that kind of like I and I don't know the musical name for the notes or whatever, but just the I feel like I want to play it on my hands, but that's that sound. That, that, Go ahead, play it on your hands. No effects. I don't know if you could hear that at all. Probably. Can't yeah, yeah, yeah. You can but that that super fast kind of no effects summed it up. When, yeah, that summed it up. But like that that type of sound that all those bands kind of got produced the same way. And it was good, but eventually it did start. Even even at the time, I remember being like, "This is kind of repetitive." Like, I don't think I don't need to buy a No Effects and a Lag Wagon record. Like, I just get, I can just get one of these. <laughs> uh, no slight, no slight to either of those bands, but it's like, yeah, I, I I got it. It's gonna sound yeah. like this. And uh, so we had a lot of that stuff. But then the guitar capabilities were very much like, all right, solo. And it would just be a screeching weasel solo. And again, not to be dismissive towards Jughead. I've become uh, friends with him in a professional capacity over the years. And I think he got a little mad at me. Because I remember saying like, no, I saw screeching weasel. And let me know that I could play guitar in a band. He's like, yeah, but it was like kind of complicated. Like I think he thought I was dismissing (laughs) it as being so simple. An idiot like me could do it. I was like, no, because up until I heard them, I was just sitting there like listening to Guns N' Roses and buying Joe Satriani records. Like if I try hard enough, maybe Joe Satriani, maybe Eric Johnson and maybe Kyle Kinane will get there in the G, the G3 or whatever they called that guitar <laughs> summit and being like not a fucking chance and wanting to give up on the instrument and then getting boogada 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 by Screeching Weasel. And within like two days had figured out all the songs, not that they were that simple, but like, oh, I can play these. And now. Now I have the confidence to try and be in a band. Yeah. And I think that was the thing with like horns, like being like, oh, horns, wh- who's your role model as a horn player? If you like scum music, like I didn't have the skills behind playing horn. I didn't have like a role model for it. But with guitar, I had role models that I could look at and emulate on the albums. Yeah. So you, um, wasn't there a show where you opened for uh, the Ataris at uh, Fireside Bowl? Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. You guys really <laughs> collected this info. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We did. We opened for the Ataris. I remember the first time I saw like parents with their teenage daughters there trying to get pictures after the show, which is like my mom came to shows all the time. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. She would usually like get beers for kids. She would come to the fireside. <laughs> <laughs> buy beers for kids but she, cool she was there just to laugh at the show yeah she's like ah these fucking kids like she just liked being around the fun uh but yeah i remember being like they were like real bubbly which there's nothing wrong with that but it was the first time like, i thought we were like supposed to be in people's faces like be punk rock and not care there was this band the mashuganas that i just to this day i love because they had such a they had such a shitty attitude, but were funny about it. Like that, that was like when I started comedy, everybody's like, just do the stuff between the songs. Were you going to stand up there alone and tell jokes? Just tell them between songs. Fuck. You think you're going to be a comedian? Now everybody's a comedian. 
because <laughs> everybody in that scene, everybody in that scene was hilarious all the time. There was Shugana's. We were always just like, try, I remember Joe Mishugana trying to tune his guitar and he just couldn't get it. And he goes, ah, fuck it. I got your money. He just started playing. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> he was, well, it sounded like shit. It sounded like total shit. I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Ah, fuck it. I got your money. Let's go. <laughs> so yeah, I saw the Ataris being like, oh, hey, how are you? Hey, okay. This thing like being, not that it was insincere. Uh, maybe it, it seemed insincere. I don't know enough about that band. Otherwise, I, I think I read some stuff that they're maybe kind of chooches or whatever. But what, wait, what's a chooch? Like just kind of a putz. I don't know. Like, like I just read some stuff. Like they were like, like rock star kind of squabbling or something, or like fighting on stage. And oh yeah, that was de- there was definitely some of that a couple of years ago. There was a video that was going around where the lead singer got upset with the drummer and like picked up his drum, his like bass drum mid song, and like smashed it into the stage. <laughs> okay, and which I saw bands do that, but out of this, out of the name, in the name of entertainment, right, right. There's not a, there's not in like a tantrum. Yeah, not in a cool way. Yeah, shit. There's a band called the Mashers who I we it was in one of the guys was in one of the bands this last month when we played, and they were all like real big dudes, like big height and width. And I remember seeing the singer jump into the drum set. And I know that's like a Cobain thing, but like when you're heroin skinny, you can survive that. This dude was going to get punctured <laughs> and he would just jump 300 pounds, just going into like that base level Pearl kit where it's all just edges. It's all just a construction site. And I'm like, I'm going to watch this guy get stabbed nine different ways at the end of the set tonight. <laughs> I thought it was great, man. That was so cool. I heard you talking about a band several times called uh, Apocalypse Hoboken. Oh, yeah, man. Tell people about that band. Oh, they're great. Sorry to steer this away from ska music, guys. That's fine. It's all it's all kind of in the same bag eventually. Yeah, but, yeah. the yeah. late 90s. Michigan has had a, the best name for their... They just released their whole catalog. It was called Lowe's in the mid-90s. And I thought that was the best name for an album. <laughs> to name it like a weather report, but called Lowe's yeah. in the mid nineties. Yeah. Uh, now Apocalypse Hobo had been around for years and they were that menacing sound, like the few bands that did crack my uh opposition to that, like Apocalypse Hoboken was one of them. And, like I think I saw so many, like that dude was always naked. I saw so many <laughs> penises before I ever saw boobs. <laughs> I saw so many dudes' dicks. In high school, before I ever saw women's breasts <laughs> in, a, in a real life setting. Who else besides Apocalypse Hoboken? That, the dude from Sam I Am, who that, I wound up meeting that guy and telling him that story that I told on a comedy special. Uh, there was him, there was, uh, I don't even remember, it was just like, it was like the thing at parties too, like all the punk rock parties, like, ah, oh, it's so crowded. And then like, you realize you're talking to a guy for 10 minutes. He had no pants on the whole time. Cause that's how crowded it was stuff that was definitely like, Oh yeah, you're going to get canceled now. <laughs> Shit. We used to party. We used to party. There was a house that was called the BMX house and they had letters on the front of it that made it look like a frat house, but it made it look like Greek letters, but it was BMX up in DeKalb. <laughs> And there was a record store we played out there called Seven Dead Arson Records, very edgy. And it was owned by the Speaker of the House. Uh, it was his son, Dennis Hastert's son, owned that record store. 
Wow. And I, I yeah, I saw him naked a lot. The son. <laughs> and then the, the Speaker of the House, you know, right wing Speaker of the House got in trouble for having uh, little boy acquaintances or something. What is it about punk rock um, that encourages or inspires people to just be naked inappropriately? I think it was like, uh, you know, you got to be in somebody's face. <laughs> Confrontational. Yeah. That and then also just it would get so hot inside shows. It was very sweaty. <laughs> so some of it was just practical. Yeah. How much punk rock was just an excuse to be just pure white trash is what I wanted. So I remember being, I mean, I made jokes about like the fireside bowl bathrooms, everything, but I remember like dudes just peeing in the sink. It's like, man, you don't have to do that just because you got like a mohawk and shit. Like you could still pee in the toilet. Like I'd still like to wash my hands, believe it or not. Call me not <laughs> punk rock, but I'd like to wash my hands after touching a hundred sweaty strangers with them. I'd like to at least wash that part of my body because I can't shower yet. So please don't pee in the sink. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, that's like like gutter. That band Guttermouth came <clears throat> when they were playing bands, and I just remember them being like, "They just like we're in your face," and everybody's like, "We don't care." <laughs> Chicago just did not respond to that. Like, oh, oh man, we're freaking you out. We're like, not really. We got Apocalypse Hoboken, and they're awesome. You guys just seem like uh, like jerks. You guys seem like uh, you weren't raised well. <laughs> you don't seem <laughs> punk rock. You just seem like you were assholes at family dinners, <laughs> and your music was not appealing. Yeah, those guys, Guttermouth. Um, I want to say it was like somewhere like five, six years ago, they did this whole thing where they're like, we're not going to play San Francisco anymore. Our cops don't, uh, don't prosecute or we don't, we don't deport undocumented here in California. Okay. Um, so that's the thing they got upset about and they got, they railed about it and the San Francisco crowd booed them and they're like, we're never playing San Francisco again. So <laughs> okay. yeah, they kind of went that whole like, um, Guttermouth did that. Yeah. It's a looking with a little right wingy. As uh, as is often the case with um, some of these punk bands. Yeah, and, and as much as I'm not right wing in the least, <clears throat> some of it makes sense because of how much punk rock was against the status quo and left leaning. That a lot of that those left policies have now become center. And yeah, I feel like there's some like tent poles of punk rock that people hold on to. Some people, it's like, oh, they're just the way the music sounds. And they'll live their life and they'll be a capitalist or whatever. But the music's got to be fast and loud. And so other people are like, oh, I got to be antagonistic. I got to always got to just be in faith. And other people are like, well, they have to be contrarian. Like Ben Weasel just has to. I feel like he aligned himself with being a contrarian. Well, now everything is like, yeah, we're okay. You know, like all all of punk rock, a lot of, you know, a lot of mainstream society. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of mainstream, but like, okay with gay and this kind of thing. Now he's got to be like. He's got to be contrarian. So if it's accepted, sure. he has to be against it, regardless of his belief. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. You just bury yourself whenever you decide to create a church around anything. Yeah. Sanctuary state is the term I was looking for. Uh, okay. California is a sanctuary state. Yeah. Well, where are they from? Are they Orange County? They're from, they are from Southern California. I'm not sure if it's Orange County or not, but yeah, they're Southern California. That says an awful, yeah. Orange County is... <laughs> <laughs> remember, yeah, I remember being. I remember playing Orange County. It's like, it's like, man, Pennywise, if we want to fight, Sublime, if we want to fuck. <laughs> like that <was> just, <laughs> which to and okay, we, I don't know how much you guys give credit to Sublime. I just read a nice long article. It was kind of 
not necessarily in defense, but in defense of the idea that like, oh yeah, the fan base really ruined some of the enjoyment around Sublime, which you should never let the fan base destroy. But like, I remember that being an early, they were on like the comps and I remember getting 40 ounce to freedom and it being all over the place as opposed to, you know, oh, it's got to be true to this scene. It's got to be true to punk rock. And then Scott came in like, okay, well, we'll let Scott, Scott's okay, but it's got to be true to this kind of Scott. And then Sublime was like, well, we got some thrash songs and then we got weird hip hop samples and then it was like, oh, I don't know what to make of this at all. And isn't that the most punk rock thing is to confuse people and like, well, what is this now? And so I, I still I still think that's a fantastic album if you can separate. Yeah, I like I like them. Yeah, I think a, a big part of what gives them a bad rap is is their fan base, mostly the, the like white college frat boy fan base. Part. And then not just that, but that they sort of inspired all these sort of uh west coast white boy reggae bands yeah which is weird because like if you listen to sublime they're they're all over the place like you're saying but somehow those dubby songs like just isolated and and inspired bands and that's like the the legacy that people get you know just roll their eyes at yeah yeah i mean you read about some of their stories that it's like ah maybe they were kind of those guys also Sure. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing them, seeing them live and it was, it was bad. <laughs> it was a bad show. They were, yeah. I mean, I think some of it was the drugs, but yeah, they were either really good or a complete train wreck. Kyle, what do you remember about the, about that show? Describe, describe the sublime <laughs> show to us. <laughs> I, I, it was, that it was not a, well, cause obviously they got their fame. It was whatever album, like Santorini and everything it was after he passed away. Sure. That they got their, they got famous and so they weren't really well i mean, just, i saw them at the metro the same place i saw blink 182 with the same amount of, like maybe like i think sublime was maybe like half full blink was maybe two-thirds full and yeah they were just they were clearly out to lunch like dude i get that you're into drugs do them after the show because it was just it was a, it was a mess like as much as like seeing sloppy bands gave people hope of like, oh, look at these people getting it together. Like, oh, they're not good musicians, but look at the energy they have. Or or they're good musicians, but they, they're working on how to make it click. This was like, oh, we have your records. We know you guys are capable of something good. And you guys are not like just off. You guys are doped up out of your minds. So mm. that's what I remember yeah. about that. And that sucked too, man, because getting down to the metro from the suburbs, like you fought so many factors of like, all right, who can get a car? Who can, who can borrow a car to get down there? All right. Well, we could save up enough money to see if we can get somebody to buy us beer. But then you'd go like, Oh, there's a Cubs game tonight. And the, the venue is across from Wrigley fields. Like, mm-hmm. Oh shit. Parking's $30. There goes all our money that we're going to try and use to get somebody to buy us beer. Cause now we got, can't find street parking. And then you go in and this band sucks. You're like, ah, oh, man, what a drag. Yeah, the, this is um, not my thought. This is a, my friend's thought, but I, I agree with it. And he says that had Sublime, had had Bradley not died uh, when he did, and if they had continued on, they probably would not be that big because all of the people that heard that those songs and fell in love with them, they never got to experience them as a, you know, terrible band, terrible live yeah. band. And that could have really ruined them, at, you know, as they were trying to get bigger. Uh, but they didn't have that. They just had the singer that died, this, you know, these songs that everyone loved. And uh, it could kind of 
create this all new legacy. Well, and there's a whole other discussion about <clears throat> how much does a tragic death yeah. do for your career? Mm-hmm. Not only because you're not around to potentially ruin it, but also the notoriety and publicity you'd get from it. Like, oh, it's so sad. Now you get to add that meaning to that music and add the what ifs. Yeah. And that, as if I'm not trying to be cold about it, I'm like, oh, God, so tragic. Because now that song that is good is even better because it's so tragic that the guy died before experiencing it and the sentiment behind it. And uh, yeah, well, now we have Sublime with Rome, whatever's going on there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I have no idea what that is. I know they played Riot Fest. I don't know if they play old Sublime songs or what. I have never, ever, ever looked up. I'm aware of them, but I've never like ever clicked a link to hear them. Who's wrong? My life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who is that? <laughs> I thought that, I thought I saw that, and I thought just Sublime got to bet back together, and that was the opening band. <laughs> yeah. No, it's somebody. I know it's a somebody named Rome. But yeah, I don't. Yeah, there's some about older band members. Like, on one hand, you don't want people to change, and you want them to stay who they who they were. But like, but there's some about like watching an artist grow with the times. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, change for the sake of like, yeah, change for the sake of making money or whatever. Like that interview as it's like reading the dirt by Motley Crue where like Tommy Lee's chapters start with bro. So listen, like, <laughs> all right, man, you Every can chapter. Yeah. You can like, <laughs> I'm not listening. I'm reading. This is a book, Tommy. Like, <laughs> and the interview is like the other dudes and supplies like fucking that was fucking whack, but bro, whatever the fuck. Cause cause you know what, bro, for real. I'm like, Oh, hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA Plus and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423 667 7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks you to not move forward <laughs> on the on the game board <laughs> and like not that i would want you to change but you kind of want somebody like oh you look you sound like an adult now <laughs> not like some adam sandler character that got stunted we'll be right back after this i'm gonna move forward a little bit to um you in, in 2016, you went on tour with the Falcon, which was a uh, Dan Andriano, um, Brendan Kelly, and uh, Dave House, right? Dave House, kind of big, yeah. Dave House, yeah. He's kind of people are kind of paying attention to him very recently. I think I'm, I'm seeing him come up a lot. His uh, yeah, his new album just came out. Yeah, I've not listened to it, but but it's good. So my first question is, when did you become like friends with? these guys you know obviously i assume that came from knowing them well we it goes back to dan ozzy who wrote the book sellout and uh he reached out to me about doing a show at the knitting factory in brooklyn probably 20 11 12 i don't know 10 years ago or so 
And it was an acoustic show that had Brendan, it had Brian Fallon. Okay. It had, I don't know if Dave was on that one, and it had um, Jenny Owens Young or Jenny Owen Youngs. I don't want to screw that up. But it was like a, you know, kind of stripped down version of these punk guys doing acoustic stuff. And so I met Brendan, I actually met him for the first time at that show in New York. I didn't, I had never met him in Chicago. I'd gone to see the shows all the time, but that was the first time I met him. I'm like, hey man, I'm from Chicago. I know you are, man. I've seen these bands. I know you are from Chicago. And struck up a friendship with him and would, when I would go back to Chicago, he would bartend at the Ginger Man next to the Metro. And I would go in there and I'd hang out with him. And then I met uh, Toby from Red Scare Records. And would hang out with them. Then Toby had this idea, like, what if you went out, like, would you re- want to tour with bands? I'm like, I'll give anything a shot. I don't know how well it worked, but I'll give anything a shot. And then it came in of like, all right, well, do you want to try? Let's go out with the Falcon. I was like, yeah, I'd try going out with the Falcon. And so, yeah, that's, and that's Dan is from Slapstick. Dan, mm-hmm. well, shit, yeah. Dan and Brendan, duh. Dan and Brendan from Slapstick. Was Dan, no, Dan was Slapstick. Yeah, they both were. Yeah, Dan and Brendan were slabs getting all these bands screwed up. Dave was from The Loved Ones. And then Neil Hennessy is on drums. And Neil's just in every band. Yeah. He's just ubiquitous with that scene. Uh, but most notably, is Brendan and him are Lawrence Arms. Or with Chris. Um, so anyway, so I went out with them. Like, let's see how it goes. And I would go up. It was We were on tour with Arms Aloft from uh, Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Those guys are great. And Arms Aloft would go up, and then I would go, and just trying to cross-pollinate people's fan bases, you know? Just trying to, like, you do that with bands, why not try and do that with forms? So how how was it? How how were you received? It was, it was a weird tone, because that started, it was right after Trump got elected. Okay. And so there was already a real weird tone, just in the world. And yeah. especially, you know, especially punk shows, like where everybody more or less is kind of on the same page politically, I, I think, especially at least for those bands. So there's this kind of defeated attitude. And it went, it wasn't bad. It was weird that like Arms Aloft would play this great set and then I would go and just stand there and talk. But enough people from music knew who I was that I think them being in the audience listening made the people who didn't know who I was also listen like I, I you know i had i was uh bonafide by some people in the audience like no no this guy's funny he knows these bands so that was okay i think i also at one point had brendan announce me just to make sure because mm-hmm. i'll do that for people when they open for me is like <laughs> like announce from off stage like hey it's kyle i've pre-approved this person to be here so don't be a jag off you know and so i think he's like yeah we got my buddy kyle's gonna come up and tell some jokes and so that kind of let people know that this isn't some oddball idea that the promoter of the venue had, but this is the tour. And uh, they all went well, except for Montreal where English is obviously not the first language and music will translate over a language barrier, but stand up comedy, everybody just <laughs> wondered why the roadie was testing the mic for 45 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Like I literally just got stared at with people like it works. It works. 
That's not a French accent. Don't worry about what I just did. There. <laughs> and one woman just decided to just sit on the stage in front of me and start smoking cigarettes to talk to her friends. I was like, I can't oh, even nice. tell you that you're being a jagoff because you don't know what's happening. And then the, she wound up being on a lot of drugs and carried out of the venue later. But outside that show in Montreal, uh, I thought I thought it went okay. I just felt bad. So all I ever wanted to do was like tour in a band. I just thought it was cool. Like I'm in the van. I'm not in the band, but I'm in the van. And then everybody got the stomach flu at one point, but they all got it in the hotel. And I thought I didn't get the stomach flu. Lucky me. And I did get it. I got it in the van and I barfed all over everything. Inside the van? Inside the van. And I had the shittiest oh. seat too, because I was just a comedian. So I was like packed. I was like the first one in. So last one to be able to get out. And uh yeah, it was just a grenade in the back seat went off. And uh and I had like a like my beard was even bigger, so it was just I'm trying to like not throw up on stuff, so I'm trying to hold it close to my body. So it just pushed <laughs> it back in my beard. And like you can't oh get God. that out without like a comb and a shower. So like I got paper towels and like Taco Bell napkins, not doing the trick, just pushing in there for, I, I look like, I look like what Tim Armstrong looks like now <laughs> with, with whatever sort of again, Davy Jones is from Pirates of the Caribbean. Look, he's got going on with that beard. What was it like to tour with those guys? It was cool. I mean, they're all good guy. It was kind of nice to see experienced bands like, Oh, it's not going to be a party every night because this is our job and we want to do good at it. And people expect a level of quality from us. And that was not that I didn't realize that already, but seeing how it's okay to do that. I I wasn't partying too much as a comic on the road, but to see bands being like, like Dan doesn't drink. Dave doesn't drink. Brendan would drink. But Neil and Neil still drinks. He's like, I don't drink on tour. And to see like, Oh, this is discipline because you guys are, professional musicians then you need to have that to maintain this career you guys are all appreciative of the career that you got that you're able to do this for a living or at least part of your livings and you treat it with that reverence i'm like oh yeah that i need to take a note from that that we're all older you know at that point i was just i uh, i was 39 it was the end of my 30s it's like, yeah, this is embarrassing. Like, the embarrassing that I also that I threw up from food poisoning and not from partying. <laughs> like, finally get to be in a band. Like, I'm doing it, and I wasn't drinking because my gout was real bad. I'd like go, had to have them like drop me off at the emergency room after a show one time and oh on tour wow. to get pills to like reduce the swelling in my feet. It was a real stupid old man trip. I threw up from food poisoning. Had to get a steroid shot for gout. But those guys were cool, and I was glad that they afforded me the <laughs> opportunity. I was more embarrassed for myself for like those things happening. I want to ask you about this. Uh, you, you, uh, the show called "Those Who Can't." There's a, yeah. a whole ska scene that happens. Oh yeah, <laughs> and you and you play like the chef or something. Or I'm the drunk janitor that was the dr- okay. Co- I was I was cooking for that episode. I think I'm in the cafeteria. So um, there's a band called Scaffirmative Action. <laughs> yeah. That place. And uh, so your line is, um, this is the Rocky Mountains region's most diverse ska band. And they're, <laughs> they've done more to promote equality than any other band or something like that. <laughs> That's fine. Um, 
<laughs> I was barely in that episode, so I don't even know the whole plot line of that one. So I, I think like a lot of Aquabats are in the backup end. It's uh, John yeah. Daly's the main character, but yeah, it's a lot of Aquabats. Yeah. So I'm curious if you know. I'm always, I'm always like so fascinated by these like, like in the last decade, TV shows are like, gonna have a little ska joke or gonna have a ska, you know, episode or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm always a little curious about what kind of goes on behind the scenes or what the tone of it is. So I don't know what you know about this scene or what you witness, but I'm kind of curious about that. Well, uh, Ben Roy, who's the heavily tattooed one okay. shoemaker in the, in, in the show <clears throat> and uh, coach Fairbell, Andrew Orbital, those two dudes have like, are tied to that like music DIY scene. Ben is the singer in a band called the spells, which like garage rock, real pop. And he goes out and he tours, he does stand up and does plays in the band. It's on the same shows so that he has a music background. And Andrew is probably like the bike messenger scene, which like spurned your alkaline trios. Like he went from Chicago, but in Denver, but like spurned, like, you know, they're all like the punk rock and kind of grind core metal dudes. So subcultures of music. So they were familiar with that. And those guys wrote a show along with Adam. Uh, they were called the Grolix out of Denver. They were like a sketch group that put on these really great stand-up shows. And that's how I got to know them. They wrote a show that they thought was funny. Mm-hmm. So forget about what other people would know about reference wise. They know this is funny and they know the audience that they're trying to appeal to will understand why a whole Scott episode would be hilarious. And that's what it is because and it's all it's it's out of respect you know it's an easily it's an you know we could all agree that ska is an easily mock thing the outfits the dancing all that stuff but it's done out of familiarity and a love for it so that's why all that stuff hit hard is because they were writing from a point of knowing what they were talking about you know, it's not like, hey, look at these people we don't understand doing a weird thing. It's like, no, we're all from that scene. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why that, I mean, John Daly gets it. The Aquabats being in on it. Like, yeah, of course. Let's have a big old fun ska show. The um, the ska puns are always like, you know, a go-to joke. But um, I've never seen more ska puns uh, than in that episode where John Daly is like, he, he any any word with an ah sound becomes ska. Yeah, he he went. Yeah, like he says, like ska, father and scan, you know, instead of father and son. It's just yeah, <laughs> and it's more funny to people that know why he's doing that. Like that's that's a whole po- like like from even in stand up too. It's like okay, you can get a whole crowd to laugh at a pretty good joke, or you can get part of the crowd to laugh extra hard at a joke because they get it. Yeah. Because they understand, like it's not for everybody, but the people that it is for like it even that much more. And that's why like those guys writing a show were like, no, we know that people will understand this. And if somebody doesn't tough shit, go go watch a different TV show. Do you um do you remember what it was like on set? Was it just everyone like cracking up or what was it like? No, it wasn't because those guys those three guys got an opportunity to make a show. They were going to make it. They wanted to just film it entirely in Denver too. So there's a lot of pressure. I think they felt a lot of pressure to do a good job because 
they created this scene in Denver. They created that sketch group. They created all those videos in Denver and it was Hollywood. Like, we like it. Would you like to make a TV show? Like, yes, but we want to do this on our terms. <clears throat> I hate that I keep going back to Dan Ozzy's book about selling out, but the same thing about like going to major labels or anything. All of a sudden you start losing creative control and you start having all these pressures and it, it's kind of like just beating your baby to death in front of you. And all you get to do is decide like what color bat they use. <laughs> so I think as, as, as fun as it was and like, and, and they did a great job of keeping it friendly and being like knowing everybody on set. And even, even though there's somebody whose job is just to put a microphone on you, you know, that guy's name and you joke around with that guy. Cause that makes the vibe everywhere better it makes everybody doing it better like just the idea like you're going to play a live show you know be nice you'd be nice to the sound guy be nice to the door guy be nice to the bartender because then everybody there is on your side when you're when it's your time to do this play your spot and that should be just decent the regular human nature that you should be nice to people but also it makes everybody on the same page and be on board with you. Like, Hey, how are you? Good. Great. We're going to go do sound check. What's your name? Great. Let's see if we can get this right. And they'll pay a little extra care to you when you're on stage and maybe put a little bit more effort in. And that's how they ran their set to the best that they could, which I, I really respected because other, I haven't done a lot of showbiz stuff, but the few things I have where it's like, man, it's just attitudes and egos and raise up their own ass or thinking about something else. And so it was fun from that standpoint that those, those guys that are worked real hard to make sure everybody felt like everybody's contribution was equal. Even if you were like the star of the show or the person that was getting fixing the catering for everybody. It's like, no, this is all a team effort. And I think that a lot of that comes from like DIY stuff and being like, yeah, the person printing the flyers going to get the flyers made is just as important as the person singing in the band. So nice. I love like um, the puns, like the aggr- the aggressive nature of the puns definitely was funny because it was so far. But I love the way you delivered your lines because there's like, um, I think the band is all white, but one guy who isn't white. And you, you say it was so heartfelt and so like you're saying something so important. You're like, this is they're the most diverse ska band. Like, you're <laughs> that's a part crack me up. I got it, man. You're calling back something that I don't even remember. So probably... <laughs> That's probably six, seven years ago. Well, it was funny. <laughs> it's weird too, because like you know, we're like, oh, that day that I said that line, I might have been there for ten hours, or I might have been there for two hours, and I only had to say that line and go home. I, I want to ask you a little bit about drunk history. I'll tell you what I can remember. I know <laughs> <laughs> you did the show three times, I think, right? Sure, maybe sure. <laughs> How does it work? Do they tell you to go like learn this history or do they give you a script to memorize? What is the first step with drunk history? I believe I may have changed some of the policies for how that show was done. Okay. Well, let's, let's hear (laughs) hear how it started and how it changed. (laughs) The first one I did, it was like, Oh yeah, let's, here's this topic and here's some bullet points. We'd like you to kind of be able to hit when discussing it. Seems easy enough. And then they're like, all right, we'll tell you when we're coming over. So when we tell you we're coming over, that's when you can start drinking, which like, don't tell me when I can start drinking. (laughs) So they were trying to, and yeah, so that first one was a disaster. And I think just for the sake of like production and editing, they're like, all right, here's a much more strict script of like, 
here are the paragraphs that in your own words, get these facts across. And then they would tape it. They would get you to do them all. They would set up all the stuff and get you to do them all moderately sober. Then a few more drinks, repeat those. Then a few more drinks after that, go through it again. Did you, um, do you have them to read or do you have to have them memorized? Uh, I mean, they kind of coached you through it. I mean, the first time through, you're like, no, I got this. I can do this role. And then the third time through, you're like, what are we talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And that's the, that's the takes they want. Well, those are the ones like you can definitely tell, or at least I can tell when I watch it. I'm like, oh, that was, they use that from the first round. They use the, you can tell the information like, oh, this is the one that the, information gets across clearly and then they cut away to somebody just like belching and falling out of a chair. I'm like, and that's from the third take that they spliced in <laughs> with the information from the first one. But yeah, I thought I get a lot of people like, yeah, we use that for history classes. I mean, it, it's one of the best ways to, it still was historically accurate and got information across in a way sure. that was entertaining, but it got the information across. So on so your first time you uh, got so drunk, right. That you were puking. Oh yeah, I chucked on. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember how much you drank? I drank a bottle of tequila. The whole bottle? I drank a whole bottle of tequila. Damn. And then uh yeah, give or take how many drinks got spilled or what have you. But they have, I mean like every set has a nurse. Really? Like every film set has to have a nurse. Okay. Medical, somebody medical. On just in case whatever goes wrong, you know, somebody cuts their finger or what have you. And so they had a nurse there, then like, all right. And then they leave because that was at my apartment. And they have oxygen there. You know, you see the oxygen bars in Vegas <laughs> or places. Yeah. You're like, what is this? Do we can breathe oxygen? We pay somebody for money for that. I do it. It's fantastic. It's the best. I, w- I was not, I was mentally hung over the next day. Cause like I, I, you know, I threw up. I taped the show, whatever. We went to bed. Nurse stays with you to be like, all right, you're fine. Everything vitals are fine. You're f- they make sure you're okay. <laughs> but they gave me. I, I had oxygen before I went to bed, and I woke up the next day completely. Like people talk about blackouts, I think they use that term nonchalantly. But like I did not remember what happened the night before. But I wasn't, I wasn't like sick, but I was definitely like mentally like, all right, I'm cloudy. And like my apartment was like a little bit cleaner than I would keep it, (laughs) which was really, which was really eerie. So like uh, everything's kind of put away, but not the way I'd put it away. (laughs) And everything's cleaned up a little bit more. Like some of the furniture was moved. So it was a real poltergeist type of vibe. And it took me a while to be like, oh, you made a TV show and you threw up. <laughs> and so the crew is nice enough to clean up all your pews. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a rule of shoot filming on any location is you have to return it to the condition <laughs> that you found it in. Which for me, I, I guess there was no way to return it to the shitty condition I had already had it in. So they, they didn't know anything other than to clean up. And they left it better than they found it. Yeah, I think I had some... Uh, some Subway sandwich left in the fridge from uh, craft services that I happily made my way through for breakfast. Did you remember much of much of the shoot at all? No, no, I don't remember any of it. And what's real wow. scary is you don't get to see it until it airs. Wow. So I don't know if you guys are big drinkers or what have you, but if you want to imagine one of your worst nights of drinking, 
And then not only to find out somebody taped it, but the only time that you're going to see it is when it airs on television. <laughs> so that was like, oh, no, I already signed the waivers on this. Did you watch it? Yeah, yeah. I think it was, I think that was the only one I watched. I don't think I've watched those who can't. I didn't. I don't think I've watched my own comedy specials. I don't watch anything that I'm like, I did it. It's over. It's like in my head, I'm like psychologically, I'm like, oh, it's dwelling on the past. It's like, no, it's quality control. Look at or or be proud of the things you made. I'm like, no, I got to move forward. But drunk history, I always watch because I'm like, it's fascinating to see yourself do or say things that you have no recollection. Yeah, I think it would be weird just to watch yourself drunk. I mean, I've I've never watched my I've never watched footage of myself drunk. So, yeah, I've taped myself enough doing stand up for quality control. Like, yeah, that was that. You missed the window on that one. Those those two drinks past the window where you could have been, could have been funny, Kyle. Yeah, I think it was not even the first one was I think it was the second or third one. You know, just like um you're still pretty drunk cuz you're just slouching. You're just slouching in your seat with your shirt kind of open <laughs> while you're telling the story. Yeah, eventually I knew what to give them. Yeah, I'm like, "Oh, this is what you want. You want a booze bag, Derek? I'll give you a booze bag. How about this?" <laughs> Like I think the third one, I'm like, I know, listen, I know the kind of TV you're trying to make, but then drunk being like, I got you, buddy. Watch, (laughs) watch, I'll grab the boom mic. (laughs) You'll love it. The viewers will love it. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scott. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the Indefensive Ska Discord. Indefensive Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific indefensive ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying... Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, 
How do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.